Hello and welcome to this latest episode in Series 2 of Sport and the Feels. This is Paralympic Feels, running through what would have been the Tokyo Paralympics. I'm Jonathan Overend, bringing together a group of familiar UK sporting voices, all of whom have hosted for national TV or radio from recent Paralympic Games. Right with me for this episode, a man I worked alongside at the Rio 2016 Paralympics, it's Andy Stevenson. How are you? Hello, Jonathan. Yes, very good. Thank you. Good. Looking forward you know to what? this. One, one, one of my highlights of Rio was going to watch the blind football. It's incredible. Mm. Because in Rio, of course, you had the Brazil team and the Brazilian crowd went nuts for mm. blind football, almost as if you were sat in the Maracanã watching the, you know, the, the able-bodied national team there. And um, the skill level on show, not just from Brazil, but the the close control, the technique, the awareness of just where the ball is and where the other players are, is is unbelievable. Really, I think a lot of a lot of Premier League players I can think of could could learn a lot from well, them. Absolutely, they could. And you know, we get so used to going to these amazing sporting events, and you get familiar with the environment, don't you? Whether it's a football stadium or a cricket outfield, or or being next to a, a tennis court. But this, for me, was completely different, a, a totally different sporting environment. A stadium, yes, a five-a-side football pitch, yes, but then this tinkling bell inside the ball, the, the hushed tones of the spectators, and then the, the roar when a goal would be scored. It was like nothing I'd ever experienced before, Andy. Yeah, I, I kind of always think of it as, because it's played, as you say, on a five-a-side pitch, I almost think of it as, you know, in the playground when you might play football with a tennis ball, yeah. for example, with your, with your pals, and you would just get used to where, you know, how the tennis ball reacted, and then you graduated up to a football. I feel as though it's kind of like that Ajax-type type way, isn't it, of everybody being comfortable on the ball and being able to control it first time, pass it first time. It's 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 a really good watch as well. And the atmosphere, partly because everything has to be silent while they're playing and then you can celebrate when there's a goal scored. It's it's a really it's a really good sport to go and watch at a Paralympic Games. I love the penalties as well when the coach will stand by the goalposts tapping them so the striker can create that awareness of where the target is. Uh, it's absolutely fascinating. Anyway, the person we're going to be bringing on to the pod today is, I think, Andy, it would be fair to say, is a legend of the sport, a legend of blind football, not just as an England international, but also as a member of Paralympics GB as well, over two consecutive Paralympic Games. Yes, and if I just read you his stats, he scored 128 goals in 144 appearances for England and Great Britain. It's not too shoddy, which, is it? Yeah, it's not too shoddy. I mean, as a, con- as a context, Wayne Rooney, record goal scorer for the England national team, 53 goals in 120 appearances. So our next guest is is twice as good as Wayne Rooney, I think you can probably <laughs> oh, say. Don't, don't start any of that. <laughs> but look, he's got some really interesting opinions, I think, not just about football, blind football, but also what businesses and big corporations can learn as well in terms of employing people with any sort of disability. He's David Clark. Let's get him on the pod. Hello, David. Hi, guys. How are you doing? Hi, David. You OK? Hey, Andy. How are you? Yeah, good. Thank you. At least I'm not wearing sequins today. Yes, I was planning to bring that up. Don't worry. <laughs> well, that's an interesting start. <laughs> <laughs> Is that broadcastable? <laughs> yes, yeah, very much. Yeah. <laughs> all above board. <laughs> I suppose, first of all, we should... Explain for people who aren't familiar the the intricacies, and and that really is a key word, isn't it? The intricacies of of blind football. It's an amazing thing to watch. Yeah, I mean, it's a 
it's amazing to watch. It's amazing to play. I think uh, the wonderful thing about um, big crowds watching uh, watching blind football is, of course, that it's really important you stay quiet while the ball's in play. So I always think it's a little bit like uh, a really complex gymnastics routine, or um, or maybe the sort of uh, sort of the excitement that builds up on a tennis court. You know, as, as someone sort of bearing down on goal, and the, and the crowd starts to get to the edge of its seat and a bit edgy, and start, and then the goal goes in, of course. And as I experienced at London 2012. You know, everybody goes crazy and you have that kind of eruption of noise. But in terms of how the sport's played, um, five-a-side game based on the game of futsal, 40 metres by 20 metres pitch. The goalkeeper is fully sighted and the four outfield players are totally blind uh, and they wear eye shades and eye patches to ensure that there is uh, no sight at all. And the ball is a size uh, four futsal ball, which means it doesn't bounce too high, but it has a, uh, a series of rattles in it to give it that audible uh, sound, and um, and that's how the game's played. Mm. I, I love I love your description there of the, the the sort of silence in the stands, and you're absolutely right. When I experienced it in Rio for the for the very first time, it was it was heart stopping. You mm. know, you're sitting in this stand mm. among really boisterous spectators. Mm. Who you're right, you move to the edge of your seat, and you're you're petrified about making a noise. And then the ball hits the net, and there's this explosion mm. of joy. I suppose it's a bit like a a gallery, Andy, around an 18th green when the ball <laughs> drops. Everyone. I was like, oh, that's a that's a relief. I can make a noise now. Um, just a just a re- very unique experience. It is. Yeah, I mean, I went to the equestrian at uh, at the Rio Paralympics, and again, you have to stay quiet there because of the horses. But also, even at the end of their performance, when often you want to get to your feet and clap and cheer, even at that point, you have to stay silent so as not to scare the horses. So you 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 end up actually. I think people wave their hands. It's not quite a Mexican wave, but they sort of wave their hands up and down to at least register some kind of movement that, that they're impressed by the performance but yeah in the football you're you're lucky enough to be able to release that in a noise just like an ordinary football match and David you mentioned about the goalkeepers because the goalkeepers in blind mm. football fascinate me because as you say they are fully sighted they are mm-hmm. non-disabled able-bodied whichever phrase you want to use so how do those uh, goalkeepers get into blind football and what's to stop you from just sort of hiring David Seaman or something back in back in 2008 and sticking him in goal yeah, I was, was going to say he's a bit old <laughs> but, uh, yeah, um, so I mean, you can't be professional, so you know you have, you have to be from the sort of amateur ranks. But but what's happened over the years is that actually, either high quality non-league goalkeepers have got involved, really got a passion for it, and wanted to excel. But then there are also other routes in, uh, many through handball in sort of uh, in Europe, but also in uh, with the growing popularity and success of futsal in this country. You know, many futsal goalkeepers are able to turn their hand to this because the goalkeeper in blind football is restricted to come two metres off their line and one metre either side of each post. And if they go outside of that for any reason, including when diving to stop a ball, it, it's a penalty. So that's really makes the makes the goalkeeping role really, really interesting because not only do you have to be, you know, a great keeper, but you have to be able to communicate constantly with your team um, and provide the maximum amount of information within the minimum amount of words and and you as the outfield player so you say that all the outfield players wear masks just to mm. make sure everybody has mm-hmm. exactly the same level of blindness i guess you, you could you could describe it is that is that right 
Yeah, I mean, you know, over the years there's been a number of controversies as there is in any sport about players that have uh, slightly used some sight through all sorts of nefarious means to kind of lift Mm -hmm. the eye shades. I think that's one thing that's been clamped down hugely in the last few years. I personally have no idea what would ever make anybody want to, let's use the word, cheat. Um, and the lengths that one has to go to to prevent that happening is quite ridiculous in my view. Uh, You've very, seen, very, seen very, that happen, David, haven't yeah, you? Yeah, absolutely. A very small minority uh, over the years, and they're you know normally picked up on and caught quite quickly. Right. Um, what, what, but it is what was that? Could, could you give us an example? I, I, I was blind since birth, and I learned a, a very particular technique of how to play football with the ball constantly, constantly touching my feet, so I knew where it was, and I built up that spatial awareness of knowing where players were, defenders were. But I mean, there's no doubt on occasions I've played against players who, who have done beyond remarkable things, shall we call it. Um, one of the easiest ways, as a blind person, that I would say that you could spot this, is that most, almost all blind people would would run with their head slightly down in order to focus on the sound of the ball. Um, I've always felt that if you see a player running with his head up, it's almost certainly because they're trying to perhaps catch a glimpse underneath the whatever shades are being used. And so I don't want to over-egg it because it's not uh, a mass thing, but uh, of course, uh, you know, in any any sport where the stakes are high, people will sometimes try and push the envelope yeah. beyond where it should be. So, so in terms of your story, I, I've, I've seen a quote um, that says, David isn't blind, he just sees things differently. What do you draw on from your life experiences to relate to that quote? So I was... I say I was born in, in Wigan in the northwest of England to, to, to parents who are from Liverpool. Uh, fortunately for me, big crazy Liverpool fans, so there's never any choice where my allegiances would lie because I wasn't given a choice. Good. So you've had a good um, couple of years. <laughs> yeah, I had a really poor 20-odd years, but <laughs> a couple of years. Um, but they, their approach to, to my sight loss was exactly what I believe I, I needed um, in the... I wasn't given any shortcuts in terms of learning how to do stuff and being independent, but I was supported throughout that. They made some very challenging decisions about school. Three years old, uh, they sent me to a specialist school for the blind uh, in in, in Liverpool on a boarding basis and then on to a school in Worcester uh, for secondary school, which which was a decision that broke their hearts, really. You can imagine sending a three-year-old child away to school was kind of... But, you know, in, in their heart of hearts, they knew it was the right thing to do. And for me... That meant I was able to get the academic footing, but also compete on a level playing field with with peers, you know. And of course, you know, I I worked really hard at school, as you might imagine, guys. But uh, <laughs> I I did spend one heck of a lot of time playing football as well. <laughs> I was playing football against partially sighted kids who could see the ball um, and had a lot more awareness than I did, and therefore that's where I developed the the close close control and all those things. But I guess that same process also instilled in me at a time where you know things were even more unequal as they are today in terms of disability and employment and educational opportunities that I would have to work harder and arguably be better than a a fellow candidate for any given job and that financial independence and you know being employable and having a career were was kind of really really important and and suppose that's what came through my parents, that through, that's what came through uh, my schoolings, and that's, I suppose, what drove me on. I, I guess, so to answer the question that, 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 
David isn't blind, he just sees things differently. Uh, there's a couple of things. That was one of the, that was a quote that one of my bosses at RBS came up with uh, when he when he'd interviewed me and met me and employed me for a little while. And I think what he realised was that I often talk about the, what I describe as the asset model of disability. Everyone wants to talk about disability as a deficit, what people don't have, what they can't do. And I think that when you go into a business environment and people work alongside you and they see the level of adaptability, problem-solving, uh, critical thinking, analysis, that you, you know, uh, analysing problems and solving them that you do you know, on a day-to-day basis, I think people quickly realise that that is a huge asset to whatever environment you're in, be that sporting, be that business, be that you know, social or be whatever. I've always seen it that way and I've always worked very hard to get other people to see that way. And unfortunately, you know, if you look at something like employment, you know, the statistics are still absolutely shocking. But I believe there is a an untapped, really powerful workforce that's still that's still out there. But we actually need to focus much more on the asset the assets that people bring and 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 um yeah. try to do that. Well, that's really interesting, isn't it? I mean is is that is that in your opinion because of inherent discrimination or are they just not taking the time to find out more about uh, candidates so i think i think it's really interesting that I, my experience is that um it isn't it isn't often a deliberate attempt to ignore or prevent someone doing something i i think there is a um tacit ignorance if you like of things like if I can't imagine myself having lost my sight using a computer then how can I imagine a blind person coming to work for me or using a computer you know I think there's a genuine misunderstanding about or lack of understanding about how I might do that you know take it back to the football you know (laughs) some people don't really understand how you know I could have gone and played all those games and how I could even get myself to a football pitch, never mind play football. Um, that's not, a, a, almost always isn't a willful misunderstanding of the issues or, or to be patronising or to be dismissive. They genuinely can't see themselves doing that. And if they can't see themselves doing that, then how can they see me doing it? Um, and that's where you get into the space of role models and um, you know, and bringing cases to life where people have done these things uh, I, you know um, uh, sorry to break in there I, I can sympathize with this quite a bit because you know I've been for, for for job interviews not so much as an adult actually but more as a teenager kind of you know early entry level jobs mm. summer jobs typically I guess that my friends would get during school holidays no problem and I would go mm. along for job interviews and there was always that feeling that I had to I had to do the job interview as everybody else would in terms of persuading the the hiring manager that I uh, was going to be good at the job. But actually, there was this mm. whole other level, which was a much bigger barrier to get over, mm. which is that I had to persuade the hiring manager that I could actually physically do the job, first of all. Yeah. And often, one got in the way of the other. And um, yeah, I can certainly remember coming away from some job interviews and thinking they're just not going to give me that job anyway because I can see it in their eyes no. that they just don't think. And, and actually, the, the better examples are interviews where actually I've gone in and they've, they've been up front and they've said, well, how do you use a computer, Andy? How do you use a phone, et cetera? And I've, I've yeah. been able to explain. And then suddenly the whole yeah. sort of mood 
relaxes and lightens and you can get on with what would be the standard job interview yeah uh, I mean, so i absolutely understand what you're talking about I've also, i mean i've had a couple of uh, one amusing anecdote and one really powerful anecdote from my lifetime so um one of the really amusing anecdotes was when I first moved to London, I was looking for work and I went to see these guys who, who were just basically door-to-door flogging, double glazing. And um, and the guy got quite taken with the fact that I might have a guide dog with me and this might actually improve his sales returns, <laughs> which of course is entirely illegal, entirely entirely against my guide dog contract. Um, so I ran away quickly from that one. But I thought, my goodness, that is, uh, that's my, a, a remarkable insight. But the one that, um, when, I, when I first joined... Um, I went and did a politics degree and then a master's in diplomacy and then eventually joined HSBC's graduate scheme. And uh, I remember the very final interview I had at HSBC where it was back in 1994 and I think it's the most honest conversation I've ever had in my career where the guy just said, look, you know, we've assessed you for capability, you're the kind of person we really want, but I need to be really upfront with you and honest with you is that this is going to be a massive challenge because we've never done this before and we're probably not ready. In fact, we're almost certainly not ready and you're going to have to work with us and explain what's needed and, and, and at times fight for what's needed and I just need to check with you that you're up for that. And um, I, I've, I've looked back on that conversation many, many times in my career and really thought, wow, that was a brave thing to say and a brave thing to do and it put the ball back in my court and said, are you up for being a bit of a trailblazer here? Um and I thought that was really powerful. Do you think we need to do more of that as a society in general? Yeah, I think um, there's nothing wrong with admitting you don't know what you should know or, you know, you don't know what you don't know. And I think we did more of that. I mean, I, you know, it's funny you mentioned that way around, Andy, because I would much prefer to be interviewed for a job and and be told that I've got the job or, you know, can we now talk about, you know... What happens to an able-bodied person is they get interviewed for a job, they get offered a job, and then they get asked what they need. You know, do you need a laptop? Do you need? Uh, if you if you turned up on day one and you had a you had a you had a, you had a laptop with no screen and no keyboard, you wouldn't you wouldn't be able to do the job, right? So yeah. it's a bit bizarre that that interviews with disabled people either ask that stuff at the start or they ask it in the middle or it gets interwoven, um, which is a bit weird because you know. You, you, hmm. you wouldn't do that in a normal interview. So I'm a big fan of yeah. interviewing for capability and then dealing with any uh, accessibility issues afterwards. I, I have another perfect example of this with David, if I, can, if I can tell you this, Jonathan, that the last time I actually was with David, he was wearing sequins on a dance floor. <laughs> now, <laughs> now, technically, Johnny Peacock was the first disabled person to take part in Strictly as, as the full series, but... In 2014, I worked on a sport relief special of Strictly, which was four Paralympians. And I was given the task of sort of thinking who these four Paralympians should be. And I was thinking, OK, well, I've seen, I have seen, I'm aware of people in wheelchairs doing, doing dancing. And I was sort of thinking of Hannah Cockcrofton and I was thinking of other people and amputees and bloody blah. And then I thought it would be amazing to have a blind person having a go at Strictly. And I fell upon sort of David's David's biog and everything and I thought okay brilliant this is the guy and I have to say watching David's training sessions with it was with Karen wasn't it Karen Howard your, mm, your partner yeah, was, on Strictly yeah. watching David's training sessions and then the performance on the Strictly dance floor I was completely blown away and there were people coming to me saying Andy when you suggested we had a blind person we just thought it was a complete non-starter 
but he's proven us all wrong. And I said, well, yeah, this is this is what we, this is what we do. This is what disabled people do, and this is certainly what David does. And the fact that you were doing lifts and turns, and I mean, I just couldn't get over it. And I think it it came from that kind of. Um, your physical spatial awareness from the football, I guess, helped you with with um, with dancing, didn't it? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it was just I, I still remember that vividly that afternoon in which you rang me and introduced yourself and asked that ridiculous question. And I seem to remember said, "I better speak to my wife." Was probably my response, <laughs> I think. Uh, but I wasn't going to do it, and she said, "You should go do it." And um, it was amazing. We we actually did literally one take. Having worked a whole week on a routine, we actually did one take. We had one go to do it and stood in the wings about to go do it in front of that audience. I was more nervous than I ever have been for any football match or in any situation I've ever been in. But I guess the one thing that probably getting back to the seeing differently stuff is that I'm very, I consider myself very fortunate in the whole kind of audio, visual, kinesthetic thing. I'm I'm visual and because I could see a little bit when I was born, I could see colours, I could see shapes until I was about six, seven years old. My, my visual cortex still works. The only difference is that it's influenced by audio sound and not by sight. So I have a constant picture going on in, in my head that's sort of describing. So sat here right now, I'm seeing the sort of study I'm in and the laptop in front of me. And of course, I can't see any of it, but the, the, the picture's being built as a result of where I know I am and the environment I'm in and where I know the windows are in this room and various other things. And, and, and that... So when I used to pull a pair of eye shades on to, to play football, that whole vista opened up in front of me in terms of every single blade of the pitch, where everybody was, where the boards were, where the goal was. Um, and I, I've spoken to some people recently, now I'm Director of Services at the RNIB, and I've spoken to a couple of colleagues, and they have exactly the same thing that I have, and I find it really interesting so if i if i'm reading i see the, le- the letters in front of me if i think of a month of the year i see the months in front of me in, in in color and what's also quite interesting i can say this now i finished playing that when i was in finals so there were two finals i was in in european finals 2003 in manchester and 2009 uh, nine in france for the first 20 minutes probably because of nerves or anxiety or whatever that ability actually went and it was dark and that was really Really crazy to really? live through. That must have been quite frightening. Yeah, well, I didn't score many goals in that period, I've got to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know where I was, never mind where the goal was. Um, but then, of course, as you ease into it, it comes you know, it comes back. But it's a really... I've never truly understood it um, as, as someone who has this. But as I say, uh, when we went up to Cambridge University and they put me under an MRI scan, they basically showed that my visual cortex lit up like a Christmas tree when it got triggered with information. Wow. Got it. You're listening to Sport and the Fields, and this brand new series is concentrating on the Paralympic Games. I'm Jonathan Overend, alongside Andy Stevenson, and we're in conversation with David Clark, who played more than 100 times for his country in blind football. As he told us a short while ago, he was sent to a specialist blind boarding school at the age of just three. He played loads of football there. So I'm fascinated to learn, when did those kickabouts turn into something a whole load more serious? Something he would end up scoring more than 100 goals for his country in? So, uh, as I say, I played a lot at school. Uh, we used to play Wednesday afternoons and Saturdays and Sundays. We played lots and lots of games. Um, one of uh, your, your former colleagues, I guess, uh, Jonathan, Gary O'Donoghue, used to arra- yeah. arrange the games midweek. And that's where I kind of learnt. But, but to be honest with you, nothing happened. So I left school 
I went to university. Uh, I, I started my started my job, and I was actually playing from 1987 until 1996. I was actually playing goalball internationally, which is another Paralympic sport. But I guess what happened in 1995, kind of the various codes around the world were brought together under one International Blind Sports Association code based on the game of futsal. And from that moment onwards, there was a, a training sessions pulled together in, in the UK. Then that led to there being uh, England training sessions, which then led to me getting picked. And I remember playing the first game in uh, one of those wonderful futsal courts in the centre of Madrid. You know the kind of ones you see, the municipal courts in the in the middle of the mm. square? Yeah. Um, and I remember scoring my first goal, which oddly for a, an English striker was actually scoring a penalty, which of course, you know, <laughs> we got a lot better at lately, but uh, not particularly good in those days. Uh, and that was, uh, and then I went on to play in, you know, uh, European Championships in Barcelona the year after, World Cup in Sao Paulo the year after that. And then we had a second European Championships in Porto in 1999, where I got my first uh, golden boot. But it wasn't until 2000 that the FA actually came in, kind of really understood that the game was a game for everybody and they had an equal responsibility. And it was that moment onwards, really, that the sport sort of kicked on in terms of um, the professionalism, the investment, uh, the coaching, the sports science and all of that that carried on building up to the point at which in 2013... Um, just in time for my retirement, of course, the game went professional. <laughs> so it took a while, in other words. It took a while, but uh, but it got there in the end. I mean, could that process have, have gone quicker, in your opinion? You were at the heart of it. What I would say, uh, uh, Jonathan, that, you know, if you go to St George's Park now and you look on that, uh, the board they have out the front there, and you see my name, you see Karen's name, you see Darren's name, you know, you see all of those caps intermingled with men's and women's. You go into the hotel rooms, you go into the function rooms, you, you know, you see the pictures of everybody. Um, you know, I've got a changing room named after me there, um, which I'm pleased to say is a fully blown changing room, not a toilet or anything. Um, you know, it's the integration yes. that's occurred into, you know, all forms of football at an elite level into that facility is something I never, ever could have dreamt about. Um, and so whilst it was potentially a slow pathway, um, it, you know, it really was done properly. Mm. And I think um, St George's Park opened in 2008, am I right? I think it did. So it shows you the kind of journey that people were on. Yeah, so so every team feels feels part of it now, and yeah. that, that's terrific. Uh, and what was, what was 2012 like? Well, um, for me... Incredibly special in a number of ways. Uh, I knew it was going to be my last tournament. Um, I had said that Beijing was my last tournament and then managed to uh, convince my wife that I could go again because of, because of London. Um, and, it, and just to mention that, it takes an enormous amount. It, you know, I hate when I hear about athletes and sports people saying they make sacrifices because what they actually do is make choices. What the people around you do is make sacrifices because they're not... Yeah, they're involved in the choice, but they're not making the choice. And certainly in my family, my wife took uh, a two-year-old and a seven-year-old to Beijing to watch me. Um, and, um, you know, with young family, it's, it's incredible. But I did decide to go on to London. I received a phone call from uh, Jeff Davis, my performance director, in about sort of early July. They want you to carry the torch. And I just assumed he meant, you know, in the relay. But what he actually meant was that they wanted me to receive the torch from someone coming in from the orbit uh, and then to run across the stadium in the opening ceremony. And I just could not believe it. And on the evening, it was just the most 
incredible experience and I will never forget you know in front of all 80,000 people and um, all everyone watching around the world and I'd had to keep this a secret even from my wife who wanted to know why I was spending 300 odd quid a ticket on her going to this thing <laughs> um, but um, but the, obviously Joe uh, Joe the triathlete came in on the wire um, and I'm thinking to myself you know a disabled guy hands lit torch to blind man who runs toward older lady what could go wrong <laughs> Um, but um, it all went very smoothly I'm pleased to say and um, I'll never forget standing by the cauldron and that warmth you know as it sort of unfurled itself and the warmth hit me and I thought you know what blind football has actually arrived at the Paralympics properly I, it always felt a bit of a poor relation in terms of the overall I mean I think team sports can often feel that way um, but blind football particularly particularly having missed out in 2004 and I just felt that you know, we'd arrived and the rest of the team felt that. Okay, can I can I just ask you, yeah, when on, yeah. you felt the warmth mm. of the torch at that moment, you were telling mm. us about the, the vision in your mind earlier. Mm. What what were you picturing in your head at that moment? Well, there's lots of... I, I, I could see the flame uh, in my mind, you know, the kind of glow. Uh, the, obviously, the heat was there, so that was, was driving that vision. And then, and, and then, you know, it was a really weird environment because, of course, it was pitch black i'd been told there were lots of you know um led type lights around the stadium and that so i just had this kind of kaleidoscope of color i suppose and it was such a racket and um beverly knight i think was singing and it was just um it was just a really remarkable moment um and it just felt i don't know it was it was very zen like really it was it was quite i remember sitting and hearing you know, a quarter of a million people come into the park every day from my balcony and just thinking, this is incredible. And I, maybe controversially, but I have the view that people bought tickets for the Paralympics because they wanted to visit the the, the park initially. And they, 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 they arrived predominantly wanting to visit the park and see the attractions. And they left fans of Paralympic sport. And when I scored my first goal in that stadium, which is the other thing I was going to say, mm-hmm. I remember... We'd just gone 1-0 down to a, a free kick that was dispatched and I remember my only emotion was anger at the time and I remember picking the ball up just over the half, just before the halfway line and I beat three players and then realised the ball was on my right foot which I normally use just to, just to, um, to stand on really. But I whacked it across the goalkeeper as hard as I could and uh, it went in and the whole place erupted and I got so excited that I went and hugged the nearest person I could find which, uh, thanks to the last leg, uh, who showed it on the telly that night, uh, was the German referee. <laughs> uh, so that then made it into the front page of the Metro. Uh, uh, but you can't say I didn't do my bit for international relations. Uh, but Brilliant. again, just an incredible moment with four and a half thousand people. And, and what was incredible, uh, guys, was that I've spoken to people who were one person who was watching this in a Vietnamese nightclub. You know, there's people in offices and and... and betting shops and schools and parks all over the country and all over the world watching watching these games and I think that that was a remarkable moment for us we never experienced anything like that before and yeah I'm right in saying aren't I David that you do coaching at the moment which has also all, all sorts of comedy potential I think you know a blind football manager doing the old Arsene Wenger I didn't see it kind of thing <laughs> um, I'm sure you're leaping around like Jurgen Klopp on the touchline yeah. but actually what are the mechanics for you of of, of I suppose getting the it's juniors you coach I believe or have done in the past yeah I've coached uh, since 2008 so I've now gone back to being lead coach for uh, Harpenden Colts Harriers under 15s it's a big shout out 
the wonderful thing, in my opinion, kids get disability completely, and they get it to such a point that other than the, other than the practicalities, it's just not an issue for them. I remember when I started coaching, I got asked about 100 questions in 10 minutes. How do you know where I'm doing? How do you know what I'm doing? How many, how many fingers have I got up? All this kind of usual stuff. Um, and after that, nothing. Um, and I've been coaching these kids ever since, and we got you know a great relationship. And um, I've also learned a lot. Uh, one of the main things I learned along the way was uh, the guy who runs the youth structure at the FA said, said on, a, on, a, on a, course, a course I was speaking at, he said... Um, two things which really stuck with me which is that every time someone shouts some advice on from the sidelines they prevent a child making a decision uh, which was the one thing and the other one he said <laughs> around sort of equal playing time is that no child ever got better at football by not playing uh, and I think those things have kind of really driven me on to create the right culture uh, of how we play youth football but I guess the big question is how do I know what's going on and I suppose a mixture of my football knowledge from playing, my football knowledge from listening uh, to people like Jonathan uh, commentating on football matches, also being able to, the spatial awareness thing I spoke to you about. So obviously, you know, it's three men and a, three men, two women and a dog. You know, out at the games normally, so you can hear all of the communication, you can hear all of the interactions, you you know the level of intensity, whether someone did make a challenge or didn't make it, and that all kind of feeds into this. Um, this kind of view uh, that I'm able to sort of interpret what's going on uh, and I absolutely love it. We did make the cup final this year but sadly it was cancelled. <laughs> so, so as far as I'm concerned we won. <laughs> Talking of cup finals mm. yes. <laughs> and you know where we're going to end this. I do. Um, 2013 yeah. Wigan beating Manchester City um, you had a, a slightly important role that day David. I did, and um, if you look at my story, I, as I said, you know, born in Wigan, to parents who love football, it wasn't obvious I, I could play for my school, play for my local club, play for my county, never mind my country. But one of the things that happened was David Bernstein uh, wrote to me and said, we would like to invite you to be the guest of honour at the FA Cup final. And this was in about January when the third round had just kind of kicked off and there wasn't really any, you know, I was I'm obviously absolutely over the moon, flattered, whatever you want to say. It was just an incredible opportunity. But, of course, we didn't know that the finalists were going to... We were both going to have a personal interest in. So, David, obviously, previous chair of, uh, of, uh, of Man City, and myself, obviously, being... I'm not, not a Wigan fan as such, but being brought up in Wigan and having a real affiliation with the club. That moment when the corner came in... I have this theory, I don't know if you guys agree, but I have this theory that I've never heard anybody score a goal when, the, when an announcement's been made over the tunnel. And when I ever hear that, I think, oh, sharp, because, you know, you know. But what happened there was there was an announcement announcing the, the, the additional time just before the corner. And then, of course, corner came in. Um, Jack Rodwell didn't pick up. Ben Watson knocked it in the back of the net. And I get landed on by Dave, Dave Whelan, who just goes, we're going to win it, we're going to win it. And I was like, well, this is Man City, and there's about three and a half minutes left. So I'm not sure you are, but it was just one of those crazy, crazy moments. And then, of course, when they won it, uh, and what's been really lovely for me is that I've built up a fabulous relationship with with some people, you know, people and fans from the club since that point. And of course, they're going through an absolute terrible, terrible time of things at the moment. But you know, to 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 share that moment with Emerson Boyce and Roberto Martinez, um, and what you may also uh, 
be aware of. Emerson carried a carried a young lad on that day, onto the onto the pitch, uh, called uh, Joseph Kendrick, who's the son of one of the local reporters up there, Paul Kendrick, um, who has uh, a really debilitating neurological uh, disease called NKH. Um, and Joseph's goal is a charity that Wigan Athletic and Wigan Athletic fans um, and, m- and myself have been very involved with to to raise money to try and find a cure. And Emerson just you know picked Joseph up as a three-year-old and took him onto the pitch and went down the lineups with him and everything else. And but it was just a lovely day for all those all those reasons. But also to be able to carry on that relationship um, afterwards. And I've done a number of charity walks and different things to support Joseph's goal over that over that time but um and you handed over yeah. the FA yeah. Cup to your hometown club yeah. incredible yeah. what a thing and it's all there on the pictures and uh, like you say I'm sure some people thought oh he's only there because it's Wigan but like you say you got the letter in January yeah. oh, so just for everything to come together quite incredible and look we wish we wish that club all the best because as you say what, a, what an extraordinary situation they're in at the moment and you you have to feel for the fans well, there's some wonderful you? people there um who I know very very well who've lost their jobs uh, I think it was uh, a, a sign of the man that Paul Cook rang each and every individual one of them um, to apologise and wish them well and has kept in touch with a number of them even though he's no longer the manager and I just hope and pray that that situation gets sorted out because um, it does appear to have been someone's plaything and, um, and there's a lot of really good people who are feeling quite desperate right now they will always have 2013 and they'll always have that trophy that you handed to them, uh, David. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Thanks so much and uh, we wish you well. Thanks, guys. So there we go. That's David Clark. He handed Wigan the FA Cup in 2013 and before that he represented GB at two Paralympic Games and all those goals for England. And, and more than that, Andy a really inspiring story and I was struck by what he was saying there about the lessons that can be learned at businesses and and big corporations about the untapped workforce that was the way he put it yeah he's one of those sports people and one of those Paralympians that I think should be listened to you know in the higher echelons of you know not necessarily government necessarily but society because you can tell there he is so thoughtful so knowledgeable and so passionate that uh, you know, he's lived, he's had his lived experience with his visual impairment and has a lot to say about how it's affected his his work and his life. And yeah, as I say, I mean, you know, inspirational is an in- interesting term when you when you use it to describe Paralympians because it's not universally popular. But I can say sat here now that I am inspired by somebody like David Clark and his attitude towards things. Andy, thank you very much indeed. We shall hear from you again, and thanks to you for listening. Make sure you subscribe if you haven't already, and you'll get every episode in this second series of Sport and the Fields, which is running throughout what would have been the Tokyo 2020 Paralympics. And if you weren't with us for Series 1, it's still available for download. That ran throughout the able-bodied games. 16 episodes there. Some wonderful stories from across a whole range of different Olympic sports. We'll see you next time on Sport in the Fields. Sport in the Fields is a 94-19 independent production.